Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am the director of ECFR. And this week we are talking about the recent Russian military buildup on Ukraine's borders. How serious is the situation and what should and should NATO and the European Union do or not do about it? I'm very happy to welcome an all-star cast to this podcast. First up is a, a brand new participant in the podcast, Marie Dumoulin, who has just this week joined ECFR as the new director of the Wider Europe programme. Prior to joining ECFR, she worked as a French career diplomat, but has a, a long track record working on this part of the world um, in academia as well. And Coming back to the podcast once again, we have two long-standing ECFR experts on, on Russia and Ukraine. First uh, is, is Gustav Gresser, who is a senior policy fellow uh, looking at defense in Eastern Europe. And back from Moscow recently um, is Kadri Leek, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR and one of our biggest experts on all things Russian. So thank you very much for, for joining me. Why don't we go straight to the border? Uh, Gustav, you've been looking at events very closely. Can you just tell us what's happening on the, the Ukrainian border? Is the situation radically different for how it was how it was earlier in the year, in the spring, for example? Um, not radically different in terms of in terms of troops deployed, uh, we still see the making of the build-up. Um, it's even roughly the same troops involved with it, um, it is far more clandestine than, than it was in March, April. So uh, most of the reports or many of the reports of Russian movements are based on satellite imagery. Uh, there's, there's little uh, sort of footage of that on the ground. A lot of movement take place at night, uh, obviously when you have few people wandering around. So the Russians are much more careful in, in moving their, their troops around. Uh, we see again an influx uh, of personnel into the Donbass. Um, the airport in Rostov and Don is full of military transport aircraft. We also see uh, mobilization of some uh, National Guard units, which is, of course, particularly worrisome from the Ukrainian perspective, because this is a paramilitary security uh, organization that uh, sort of in the case of war would, would have reaccurate duties such as sort of guarding or securing newly conquered territory and setting up um, occupation administrations, etc. cetera. Um, uh, they were absent in spring, which um, sort of was one indication that Russia was threatening, but not really planning to conquer something. And now also heading for, it seems, for the Donbass. How many troops are we talking about? Well, if you want a soldier's number, we are, the Ukrainians gave a number of about 150,000 Soldiers, which, given that roughly ninety thousand are permanently stationed on Ukraine's border, we have to see. Uh, this is this is still a pretty early phase. Um, uh, what is what is for now in the dark is, of course, the aerospace forces around around uh, Ukraine. So there might be more, but but it's it's still a bit of a mystery. Also. Uh, what is new is that uh, we suspect, or the Ukrainians suspect, and there's there's very much reason for this suspicion, uh, further uh, Russian troops uh, exercising, under quotation mark, in Belarus. Um, the Ukrainians have deployed two 
brigades, one mountain infantry and one national guard now to the Ukrainian-Belarusian border and are uh, worried that uh, sort of in the case of events, uh, this border would, uh, would be used to at least annoy the Ukrainians very much elsewhere in order to stretch their forces. Okay, so why don't we look at why this might be happening? Kadri, you just spent a few weeks in Russia talking to lots of people. You were there for the the annual Valdai conference and um, talked about some of the, the more kind of bellicose language that you were hearing around Ukraine. But what do you think the Russian intentions are when it comes to this latest build-up? Um, I can say immediately that I will not give you a clear answer because I am puzzled myself. I mean, what I saw in Russia is indeed that the language uh, they use about Ukraine has changed. It is now very derogatory, both about the country and especially about President Zelensky. And it seems to me that Moscow has decided that the uh, Minsk agreements that sort of uh, uh, finalized the intensive phase of the conflict uh, in 2015 the trees are not working for them, but Ukraine is not willing to deliver on Russian version of the agreement. And it looks like Moscow is walking away from Reese. And that, of course, leaves a vacuum where anything can happen. Also for President Putin, Ukraine keeps being an emotional issue. That is also very clear. Uh, on, on many other matters, he's sort of a little bit relaxed, a little bit tired, as, as is fitting for the president who's in office for 20 years or discount the Medvedev period. But Ukraine is, is clearly very personal and, and very emotional. So, yes, many people I talked with in Moscow, they said they don't exclude a new war. But, you know, how, what would that war try to achieve? That is still something I don't understand. If Russia tries to take another few towns and conclude another set of agreements, I mean, that would fear the same fate. That would be another agreement signed at gunpoint that is simply not realistic. Uh, Ukraine is not going to fulfill it the way it tries to get out of some of the clauses of the current agreement. And, you know, how... And to, you know, to imagine a full-scale war against Ukraine with an aim being Kiev, I mean, that is, that is madness. And that is, that is not popular at home in Russia. And demand among Russian population is clearly for social welfare, and the Kremlin knows it very well. They conduct opinion polls and focus groups regularly. This would not be a small victorious war at, at all. That would wreck all the relationship Russia has managed to build up with the new U.S. administration, and I think they value it. So I'm a little bit at a loss here. I I don't understand what the intention is. In the spring, I did. It was all about signaling to Zelensky and to Americans. But now I, I really don't know. So uh, Marie... How do you think it all fits together? Both what we've been hearing about from from Gustav and Kadri, but also you know in the background we have 
the weaponization of the, the Russian energy market against Moldova, alleged support for, for Belarusian attempts to, to weaponize migration. Um, and certainly, you know, many people in Washington that I've been speaking to this week uh, do think that we could have a, a war on our on our hands. What do you think is going on? What do you think the implications of all of this are, are for stability in the in the wider region? If you were still in your old job, what would you be advising President Macron and um, and the French government to to do? Well, I must say I would be at a loss to advise what to do in the current context. Um, what is clear to me is that Russia seems to feel strong, or at least stronger than it was. Um, um, even in the spring, uh, because of the high energy prices, uh, because of uh, what happened in Afghanistan, also because of divisions inside, uh, well, among Western countries. Now, I think we have to pay attention to what the Russians have been saying until now. They kept saying they are not a party to the conflict in Donbass. And they also kept denying Ukrainian sovereignty and agency. Um, so what they have been trying to do through this um, discourse is basically to introduce an equivalence between Kiev and the two separatist regions of the Donbass and an equivalence between their own role um, and the role of France and Germany uh, in the Normandy format and to turn the Normandy format um, into a place where three big countries would dictate uh, what Ukraine has to do. Now, because this doesn't, didn't work um, with Germany and France, um, it seems they have turned away from the Normandy format. I'm not sure they turned away from the Minsk agreements, but at, uh, at least um, this negotiation format is not as relevant as it might have been in the past. My question is um, what a direct or open military intervention would mean uh, for Russia. And given what they have been saying in the past, uh, it would amount to a significant change of paradigm because Russia would admit um, it is a party to the conflict. Why would it do so? I think there are two messages, at least. Um, the first one is to the West. They would tell us, you thought we were a party to the conflict. Now see what it is like when we are one. And the second message is probably to Ukraine. Um, and it is to show Ukraine that it cannot rely on Western support to the extent needed. Uh, and here, I think we can draw a parallel with Afghanistan. The problem we would have in this case is that I'm not sure we would be able to replicate this change of paradigm. A, because we are already saying that Russia is a party to the conflict. Um, so we would say it further, but uh, with no bigger effect than that. And operationally, it raises extremely big questions on the West's uh, readiness to, um, yeah, to replicate that change. I mean that really brings us to the to the big question, which is what the EU and NATO are doing, what they should be doing. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warned Russia on Monday that the Western military alliance is standing by Ukraine, um, but in practice and through Russian eyes, how does the support of NATO and the EU to Ukraine? Look like um, Gustav. You you spent a long time working in a in a ministry in the Austrian Ministry of Defense, not a a, a NATO member, but um, you uh, will no doubt have 
some views on, on on what NATO should be doing, but also what kind of signaling do you think the EU should be offering at this period? Yeah, well, they sort of try to tell Russia that it will have consequences at the same time being ambiguous about uh, the Western role, uh, whether sort of we would be directly engaged or indirectly engaged in what is going on. I mean, the big problem uh, I have with everything we can do now is that sort of military apparatuses uh, are always long-term in the making. And so we actually knew that Minsk agreement was playing for time and that it was not the perfect solution. That was clear to, at least to the German uh, officials involved to it from the very beginning. I just wonder why did we... Uh, debates so long how to support Ukraine and how not to support Ukraine when we knew that sort of the clock was ticking and that Moscow at a certain point would be dissatisfied with with the results it will get. Um, I mean, the immediate crisis signaling here, of course, it's again, first and foremost, of course, the US that matter because in Russian view, sort of they are not only the prime agent, they are sort of the big military counterpower that can really counterbalance them. And I I just want to remind you in in April, nineteenth um, of April, uh, was the U.S. decision to deploy two squadrons of aircraft uh, to Poland to and uh, and on the twenty seconds, uh, Gerasimov on the twentieth of April they came and on the twenty second of April Gerasimov declared uh, the maneuvers to be ended. Uh, well, if you look at the squadrons they came from, or the wings they came from, the bases they came from, uh, you will easily see that these are the nuclear-assigned uh, aircraft. So they are, they're working at bases where the Americans have nuclear weapons stored, and those are these wings who are dedicatedly trained uh, to deliver nuclear payloads. Um, so, so that signal was fairly strong um, from the American side, and the Russian side immediately understood. Uh, but, but it's of course only the U.S. that can that can send such signals uh, given given their inventory. I'd like to come to you, Kadri, in a sec to, to hear what you think the Russians are thinking about it, but also what what other countries. I mean, you're Estonian, and no doubt talking to 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 friends and other people. Um, who feel more and more vulnerable on the in countries which are much closer to to the action? But before we do that, maybe good to hear from you, Marie, how people are thinking about it in Paris and, and what you think the the sort of EU perspective uh, on this is. Do you think the EU are doing the right kinds of things? What what, what do you think can be done at this stage? <laughs> I think one of the big concerns is uh, not to trigger by our actions what we are actually trying to prevent. To prevent, um, so the EU will be carefully thinking about what it can do in this in this context and what it should better not do. Uh, now, if if we go back to what I previously said about um, Russia not considering uh, Ukraine as a sovereign state and denying it any, any agency. Um, I think that's the least we can do, uh, reinforce Ukraine's sovereignty and, and signal that we are supporting this country as a sovereign uh, member of the European continent. Uh, and this can be done through visits, high-level visits uh, to Ukraine. Um, it can also be done through promoting also 
at some point, um, direct contact between Russians and Ukrainians, it would be, I think, a mistake to speak in the place of the Ukrainians um, in the current crisis, but we should also not put them at risk uh, because obviously direct contacts with the Russian side have a political cost uh, internally in Ukraine. Um, and we should further think about what, uh, what to do to consolidate um, the Ukrainian state on the, on the one hand and to raise the cost um, of action for Russia. Now, the more we think about raising the cost of action uh, for Russia, the easiest it is for Russia to take our thoughts into account in its own calculations. So this is something that requires also um, a bit of discretion, at least. If we go back to 2008, before the, the war with Georgia, you know, there were various attempts to do some of the things you're talking about. You had visits from German and Polish foreign ministers to, to Georgia that didn't really act as much of a deterrent on, on Russian action. I mean, obviously, uh, Mikhail Saakashvili um, played into Russian hands and ended up uh, you know, uh, precipitating the, the crisis himself because of the way that he was dealing with Russian provocations. But do you think that what you've described is really enough? I mean, one of the problems with Georgia was that it was, uh, you know, the, the West was so keen to be ambiguous that, um, that it almost encouraged the Russians to test out just how committed they were to Georgian sovereignty. Uh, no, you're right. And the parallel with Georgia is uh, is striking, actually. Um, now, uh, if we do not do that, at least, uh, then we signal that we don't care. So we should do that and do more uh, in terms of consolidating functional state structures, um, helping also uh, Ukraine build a more reconciliating narrative inside Ukraine and and and, and not give uh, any pretext uh, for the, for Russia to to criticize and intervene uh, in this way the, the the Georgian parallel um can also be useful not to let Ukraine play into Russia's hands the way Georgia did 13 years ago so Kadri, I'm not sure where you're sitting, but are you in Estonia or in Germany or in, in Russia or where are you at the moment? In Estonia, in Tallinn at the moment. So how do you, I mean, Tallinn's obviously a place that um, <laughs> is uh, very attuned to, to all of these, uh, you know, quite frightening geopolitical developments and um, be interesting to hear a bit more how people there uh, interpreting what's going on, how scared people are of, of war, but also what they hope that NATO and, and other EU member states might do at the moment. Well, Estonia is concerned, uh, but frankly, more about Belarus, about what's happening on Belarusian border. And there have been discussions whether the same could be happening on Estonian-Russian border. If you accept the theory that Russia is the mastermind behind it, then it would be logical to see um, masses of refugees on Estonian-Russian border as well. That, however, is, is not happening and I don't think it will happen because I, I think Russia uses Lukashenko to troll the European Union and to play on its fears but I don't think it will join in um, the action uh, right now. 
So but, what do Estonians want us to do about, about Ukraine? I mean, it's funny, you um, and I and Marie have all at various points been in Georgia together on these different trips. I think we're all quite, uh, quite marked by that historical experience where, um, you know, Europeans didn't really get their act together until after the crisis. Yes, well, everyone in Estonia is, is of course, calling out for, for more support uh, to Ukraine. Uh, but it is um, it is often unclear what what form that support should should take. And now I'm sort of uh, putting back my hat as Russia expert, not as an Estonian. I think the problem here is that Russian analysis of Ukraine is completely wrong. And that is not very frequently you can say so. Russia might be cynical, but but often actually they have their facts right uh, when it comes to places like Middle East or, or Africa or, or you name it. But, but Ukraine is really where they have facts wrong analyzes from the whole idea that Ukraine is essentially a Russia, a part of Russia, just um, manipulated by external powers. That is just not the case. But that, you know, in policy terms, that leads to a paradox, because I think the more the West supports Ukraine, the more it reinforces that thinking of Vladimir Putin. Actually, I shouldn't say Russia. I think that is very much Putin. Not everyone in in the Russian establishment shares that obsession about Ukraine or even the analysis. Uh, But the more we support Ukraine, the more we actually reinforce that thinking that this is a regime propped up by by the West. At the same time, however, of course, we need to signal that that another invasion would would have consequences. And I think America might really be best place to do that, especially given the working contacts that Biden administration has with Russia. Uh, Putin personally seems to respect him. So a message that, you know, we are not going to invite Ukraine to NATO, at least not right now, not during my presidency. Uh, No one can give promises about ever, but uh, it's fairly safe to say that not tomorrow. But if you invade, that will have consequences. Because in the end, I think Russia simply needs to lower its its aims about Ukraine. What they are wanting to get there is completely unrealistic. And I think the whole sort of idea of Minsk agreements, I mean, Western powers who were present at the signing of it, they clearly saw uh, that Ukraine signed something that it cannot fulfill. And I think the idea to sort of support the agreement was exactly that if Russia wants a face-saving way out, then the agreement could play its role. Chancellor Merkel has always, for a long time at least, called for the elasticity of Minsk agreements. And I I, I like the term. I, I think that's where the usefulness lies. But to my disappointment, uh, seven years on, Russia is is still not ready to make use of that elasticity. So, Gustav, it's a bit paradoxical what Kadri was suggesting there, that the, the best way of deterring Russia is by saying that we're not going to let Ukraine into NATO. It's the kind of opposite of what a lot of um, Ukrainians um, maybe uh, want to happen. It's certainly... 
that sort of messaging back in 2008, which encouraged them to, 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 to invade in some people's eyes, the fact that, that um, we gave this kind of slightly, or, or maybe Kadri's right, maybe the problem in 2008 was that we were too ambiguous by, by offering to give people a membership action plan, sorry, a, a, a prospect of membership, even if there was no membership action plan. In, in 2008, we passed the NATO declaration that said Georgia and Ukraine will be members of NATO. But we also said they wouldn't get a membership action plan, which was the way to get them there. So it was a, it was a, yes. well, it was, it was total model. <laughs> if, if, if I can share sort of historic memory about that, I, that was, I think in 2007, some, somewhere before Bucharest, uh, we sort of, in the Ministry of Defense, we had one of these round tables discussing European security. And I, um, sort of, we discussed, of course, with the Russians, there was a heated debate about Georgia and Ukraine and NATO membership perspective. And uh, there was one American who was advancing sort of to, to, particularly the course of Georgia. And I, I passed him a note saying that, you know, I, 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 I really feel sympathy for the Georgians and their pledge, but are you, in terms of capabilities, uh, able to defend Georgia against the Russian attack? And he wrote me back, well, NATO in the 21st century is not about defending against Russian attacks. It's about uh, securing democracy and, and facilitating them to participate in stabilizing missions like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and that was sort of my big problem of 2008 is that I, I could perfectly understand the Ukrainian-Georgian desire. The problem is what it was met by a completely blue-eyed mindset in the West of what sort of the of what Russia was and uh, of what kind of of stuff um, we we had to expect, uh, and that basically uh, that basically put together this conundrum. Now I I'd still say uh, NATO membership for Ukraine. I'd, I'd say the opposite. Everybody who has not managed to slip into NATO is in a pretty troublesome space by now. Um, the thing, of course, uh, NATO membership is something also you should earn on your own weight. Uh, uh, so it's conditional to a certain state of reforms, um, uh, and and here, of course, you can you can happily make a case that that one or the other thing needs to be done in Ukraine security apparatus. Uh, but beside that, the crisis is is urgent, and actually, we have signed enough international law declarations from the UN Charter and the prohibition to use the threat of violence or violence to, to enforce political terms down to, uh, down to the OSCE Charter that would entitle us to support Ukraine, regardless whether it's uh, a, a NATO member or not. Uh, and I think uh, we, should, we should very much call on them uh, to, to uh, flag out our support for this. Uh, and that includes uh, to 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 keep Russia guessing whether we would really go there if something happens. Of course, this needs backing from Washington, um, but it is something that will make uh, Russia uh, carefully uh, waiting its chances. And and on here, the difference between Ukraine and Georgia, of course, is that Ukraine is bigger, and Ukraine by now has a much more capable army. Uh, in 2008, um, mopping up Georgia militarily was something that the Russians could easily guess uh, would not backfire, even if the Russian army stumbled into real problems that it didn't anticipate in terms of the performance of their troops. It didn't, didn't jeopardize the war. Uh, in a war with Ukraine, things are a different business. Um, if, if that goes wrong or not really according to plan, 
for Moscow, uh, the domestic ramifications are severe because I don't think the wider Russian population really supports uh, Russia shooting Ukraine into pieces, although they probably support regaining it. They don't want to shoot it into pieces. Uh, and they don't want to have a large number of their own countrymen killed for that. Uh, so so here, are, I, I think the two situations are, are fairly different. And these differences give us a chance to preserve uh, at least the current status quo, if not improve Ukraine's situation in the future. Okay. Um, why don't we let you have the last word, Marie, as we, uh, as we come to the end of our, of our time. Um, have you got any last reflections on both what you think will now happen over the, the weeks ahead and, and, and what should happen? And one of the most challenging things about this, I suppose, is that it's happening at a time when, when NATO is going through such a, a a tricky period where the U.S. gaze is obviously moving uh, eastwards towards the Indo-Pacific, and and relations between some of the key members uh, within NATO are are so fraught. You know, the Franco-American uh, spat is, is is well publicized. Britain and and uh, France are not getting on particularly well. Turkey is obviously uh, carrying on playing a, a very problematic role within NATO. Um, how does that all play into this? Well, I pretty much agree with everything uh, that has been said by, by Kadri and Gustav. Um, we are in a sort of catch-22 situation because the more we display our support to Ukraine, the more we play into the Russian rhetoric about um, Ukrainian sovereignty or absence of sovereignty. Um, but we also should be aware that uh, Russia is quite in the same kind of catch-22 situation for the reasons Gustav described. Um, if it intervenes, um, then it might uh, achieve its goals, but uh, it has a cost, and not only for its relations with the West, but also for its relations with other uh, post-Soviet countries and um, internally. Um, I'm not sure whether um, there is a possibility to have a sober dialogue with Russians on this um, overall catch-22 situation and whether it makes sense for Ukrainians to try to reach out to Russia in the current context um, and act as a sovereign um, actor in, in this situation. Obviously, if it does, then it will need our support, um, not in a way that uh, makes Russia think uh, we are uh, the ones um, dictating uh, the language. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how we uh, go out of this conundrum, uh, but what is clear is that uh, EU needs to stand united. And, um, and the same goes for NATO, which obviously uh, will be more difficult for the reasons you named. Um, I could very briefly come come in also. I think, I mean, Marie's idea that there should be more contacts between Russia and Ukraine, um, that is excellent and it's long overdue. And most people in, uh, in, in Russia I talk have last time been to Ukraine in 2013. So they really have no clue about how uh, thinking has, has evolved. But there is the small trouble is that 
these are totally different countries structurally. Russia is top-down country. Ukraine is bottom-up country. Russia is driven by the Kremlin. Ukraine is driven by society with very weak political elites. So, you know, they are not compatibly even structured to have uh, fruitful talks. And that, of course, might call for for some um, Western mediation just to make the two read each other adequately. But that said, you know, I guess that is something that France and Germany have been trying to provide that so far it, it, it hasn't worked in major ways. Okay, well, I think we're going to all be watching this situation very carefully. Many of us are going to get sleepless nights, I think, over the days and weeks ahead. And I'm sure we'll come back and talk about it more. But we've run out of time for this discussion. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Uh, Gustav, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I have two little kids. Um, I'd be glad if I had a bookshelf that was not covered with... uh, Paw Patrol or something else. No, uh, Andrew Weiss uh, uh, wrote a good uh, paper on uh, Putin's unfinished business in Ukraine. Uh, I think that's sort of giving the the acute situation the the best read to. Thank you. What about you, um, uh, Marie? Um, well, Andrew Weiss' paper is also on my bookshelf, um, but on the more on the elder publications, I would um, I would say the last issue of uh, Russia in Global Affairs, where you have um, articles by Karaganov and Lukyanov, uh, which pretty much reflect, I think, the geopolitical thinking in Moscow at the time. Okay, and you, Kadri. Yeah, Russian global affairs is always worth reading, but I um, might give a shout out to a new book I just bought from Moscow, which is essay collection by uh, Ekaterina Shulman, a uh, Russian um, political scientists and sociologists. Also very interesting thinker, very active, very prolific. Uh, so I will, I will spend my Saturdays on that. Great. Well, If you've enjoyed listening to podcasts, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or or ours, but above all, by heading down to the platform you use to download this on and giving us a positive review and hopefully a five-star rating. It'd be really great if you could do that because it helps us a lot. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Gustave Gresso, Marie Dumoulin, Kadri Leek, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Alessandra Thompson. Thompson.